Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and my guest this week is world-renowned neuroscientist Dr. Adrian Owen, OBE, who made the incredible discovery that some patients thought to be in a persistent vegetative state are in fact fully aware and able to communicate with the outside world. Adrian, it really is so lovely to speak to you again. I'm so excited to talk to you about your groundbreaking brain research and your incredible discovery that 15 to 20 percent of people described by clinicians as being in a vegetative state are actually fully conscious. And I just want to quote a little bit from your book, Into the Grey Zone, where you say that 15 to 20 percent of people who are thought to have no more awareness than a head of broccoli are fully conscious, although they never respond to any form of external stimuli. Of course, discoveries like this, Adrian, they're not made overnight. And your book tells their story and your story of years of research really, really rather beautifully. I really, really enjoyed your book inside the grey zone. And, and of course, what I found really interesting about it is it's a book of nonfiction. But for me, it was like reading a book about a number of love stories. I mean, that's really what it read to me as and what made it such a wonderful read. Of course, in some of these instances, it's love stories that endured the most incredible circumstances. And the thing is, this podcast, Superbrain, is about surviving and thriving in life. And your book is full of incredible stories about survival. Um, But it also raises some really, really important questions about what it means to survive, what it means to be human, what it means to be conscious. So there's so much, so little time. So could we start perhaps with your own love story with Maureen and your love story with neuroscience and the brain? For sure. Well, thank you first for those very nice compliments about the book. I'm glad that you came away from it feeling that way because that's how it was intended to be. You know, I've sort of had this story for many years uh, and it's not one that I I thought about in non-scientific terms until people really started to badger me after I would give public lectures and they said, "You, you have to write this down. You have to tell this story. And it was only really when I sat down and started to write. And in fact, it was interesting. I, I wrote two chapters and then threw them away when I found myself describing what a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, uh, what it looks like and what it does in the brain. I was halfway through chapter two and I'm you know, doing my normal scientific thing, describing the nucleus accumbens. And I suddenly thought, nobody cares what the nucleus accumbens looks like or even what it does, apart from you know, a small group of neuroscientists who study it. This is, this is not what people want to read about. They want to read about the people involved and how the science evolved. And and then I went, I went back to scratch and then it became very easy to write. And as you say, it's a series of stories about the patients that I've seen over the years, about their relationships with their partners or their families, their relationships with me, uh, how things that were going on in my life uh, fed into that through you know various sort of coincidences, I think. Uh, and also about this sort of scientific journey. So I hope the way the story unfolds is as a almost like a scientific detective story that in some senses has a an ending that's simultaneously happy and tragic. It's sort of happy for the science in that we made some really major discoveries along the way. But, you know, there's a lot of tragedy there in the, in the lives and the challenges that the patients face. Yeah, and a lot of startling discoveries that with hindsight make you consider tragedies that were happening before in that as I opened with you know you made this incredible discovery that people who are um, 
I don't know if diagnosed is the right word, but certainly described as being in this vegetative state, have actually been conscious and aware. And Kate comes to mind, one of your first people that you studied, and she said some... I felt they were some rather sad things in a way, you know. She spoke about holding her breath to try and take her own life, which yeah. really kind of got to me. Yeah, I mean, Kate was was the first patient, you know, patient number one, as she's often been described. Uh, I mean, this was, you know, again, I, I referred to as a coincidence or serendipity earlier. And, and um, you know, I had been pursuing something I felt very passionate about at the time. That was brain imaging. This is back in uh, 1997. Um, I was back in Cambridge in the UK uh, working in uh, one of the first brain imaging centres there at Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge. And um, one of my colleagues, uh, Professor David Menon, suggested to me one day, you know, we have this patient who's come in who's in a vegetative state. And you, and you use the right terminology. People are diagnosed as being in a vegetative state. And, and that means that they will open their eyes. They have sort of sleeping and waking cycles. Sometimes they'll appear to fall asleep. Um, they don't obviously get up and walk around. In fact, they have no purposeful movements at all. So they sort of have these roving eye movements. They just look around the room without staring at anything in particular. And, and they won't respond to anything at all. If you say, you know, squeeze my hands, they won't do it. Blink my eye, they won't do it. That's the classic vegetative state. And it is a formal diagnosis. And Kate came to us at Adderbrook. She was in a vegetative state. She'd had a virus that had, had attacked her brain. And uh, yes, David Menon you know, said, well, you know, you're, you're the imaging guy. There must be something we can do to put this patient in the scanner. And, you know, to give this some sort of context, I mean, this was something that most people thought was absolutely bonkers at the time. I mean, this is a patient who most places in the world would just assume this patient's never going to recover, never going to go anywhere never has any internal sense of being no thoughts you know why would you put them in a scanner you're not going to see anything and to take people back like so that's 1997 I mean we grew up in times long long before political correctness and long before people considered the impact of things that they would say but people would talk about vegetables and they weren't talking about broccoli you know they were talking about people in a vegetative state but literally people sort of said that I mean I remember that growing up oh so-and-so's been an accident it's terrible he's a vegetable and it wasn't meant in any horrible way it is now when you say it and I hope people I'm just saying it as how things used to be said but it's a very long time that people have had that view that there's nothing yeah. going on it's an unfortunate misuse of the terminology. Yeah. So the term vegetative state was coined, I think, in the 1970s or so. Um, and it doesn't refer to vegetables at all. Um, no. it's, it's referring to the vegetative functions of the brain. And these are things like breathing and digestion and your heart rate, all those things that are actually controlled by your brain, but they're controlled automatically. You don't have to think about breathing. It just happens. And those are called vegetative functions. Yeah, and they're controlled by the brainstem, That's which right. is the oldest part of our brain, which most people nowadays from watching programs like Eeyore and all those kind of things, you know, if you hear the doctor saying their brainstem death, you kind of know oh gosh, they're screwed, you know, that's it, they're gone. But I, yeah. I think obviously what happened was this misunderstanding from ordinary folk back in the 70s, because that's what I'm talking about, took vegetative state to mean something to do with vegetables. I must look up the epidemiology of it, but that must be where the phrase came from. Yeah, well, so it's, it's unfortunate. And actually, there are a lot of moves nowadays to try and rename the vegetative state. And, you know, there are, there are sort of other terms have been suggested that are sort of less likely to be misinterpreted like that. So we may see things change. But anyway, at the time, uh, that was the diagnosis that Kate had was the vegetative state. And we decided to put her into the scanner. And what we did is we showed her pictures of her friends and family. And the idea here was, well, we know which parts of the brain, or we knew back then, which parts of the brain are involved in perceiving and recognizing faces. If there was anything going on in her brain, maybe her brain would recognize these faces. And sure enough, when we showed her these pictures, the exact part of the brain that we know is involved in perceiving and recognizing faces. It's called the fusiform gyrus. It responded. Uh, it responded when she saw faces, didn't respond when she saw non-face stimuli. And that was extraordinary. I mean, it was the first time that a patient who 
clinically met all of the official criteria for vegetative state, was put into a brain scanner to look at brain function like this and produced what appeared to be completely normal responses. I mean, the really amazing thing looking back, I mean, that paper came out in 1998 and it caused a huge splash at the time. We were, David Men and myself were on morning TV for several days running. Because you've become a a regular, you've made so many exciting discoveries. You've even had a documentary made about you uh, with the BBC. Yes, and I look back on those uh, early morning television appearances and they actually really make me cringe, (laughs) But uh, mostly because I had so much hair back then. But um, And that makes you cringe? (laughs) Well, it makes me cringe that I have so little hair now. (laughs) You're not doing too bad. You're not doing too bad. I'm hanging on there for a 54-year-old, yeah. So that that was really extraordinary. But the, I, I think looking back, and I, I talked through this whole idea in the book, what was really interesting is that we had absolutely no idea what it meant. Looking back now, we do. But back then, we said, well, what, what does this mean? Because I, and I thought we had this fantastic result. You know, Kate's brain was responding to faces. And I sort of ran around Cambridge showing this to people, saying, look at this. Isn't this amazing? And everybody said the same thing. They said, yeah, but is she conscious? And that's the central question that was remaining. And that's really at the heart of the book, I think, is that, yeah, you can show people having normal brain activation, but can you conclude on that basis that they're conscious? And as you know, you read the book, that story unfolds. And I try to illustrate yeah. how in some in some circumstances, actually, you can, but it's not enough just to show that a brain recognises faces to say that somebody's conscious. And I think in sort of everyday parlance, people, if you say, is she conscious, people would sort of go, no, she's unconscious. You've just said she's not moving. She's not talking. But this is a very different thing. And this is where language sometimes kind of gets in the way. You know, we use words like conscious and awareness and we don't really know what we think we know what we mean and in everyday conversation we do but actually when it comes to doing something like science like this what do we really mean and and that's really exciting in the book is you face those questions and you do it in that journey on your way it's as you kind of something comes up and you go oh that made me question this it's very well done it was very useful to tell the story chronologically yeah. You know, it actually really made sense. And again, that's where it really sort of came together when I realized that actually the reason I made this decision in 2006 is because that happened to me in 1997. And the reason that I was able to put Kate in a, a scanner and ask that question was only because I, at that point, had had 15 years or so working in brain imaging and, and neuroscience and, and sort of knew quite a lot about the brain and about how you can examine different brain functions using different types of brain imaging. But it's only with the benefit of hindsight, you can see how that's how it all unfolded. Yeah. And I think it's important to put that in context. Brain imaging is relatively recent. Anything that we knew about the human brain sort of up to that was gleaned from when things went wrong. All these famous cases like HM and all those in the literature, we understand how the brain works when someone sustains a brain injury or has, you know, where you can clearly see. That's how we learn how different parts of the brain are involved in different activities. So until the advent of brain imaging, that was probably about the only way we really came to understand brain function. That's why there's so many of these sort of iconic cases through psychology and neuroscience, because we learn so much from them. But brain imaging, when you're using, I mean, you start off using PET scanning and then you move on to MRI and fMRI and you use EEG. When I was reading those bits, I got hot sweat. So I was trying to put this in context. I'm a few years older than you, but I started in university later than you, much later. So I started my PhD in 2007. So I'm thinking this 10 years after that, because you do then start talking about it's funny, almost coming full circle towards the end of the book, you start to use an imaging technique called EEG, which measures the electrical activity in the brain. And it's not as sensitive or fine tuned as, you know, what you see in MRI, but it's now portable and it's now, gosh, I was just thinking when I was reading you saying you could get the readouts as you were measuring electrical activities in the brain. I mean, for my PhD, my PhD was a uh, neurocognitive and electrophysiological indices of cognitive decline in aging. And I'm not that sort of techie person, but I remember having to write these programs in MATLAB 
to analyze the data and they it, it, like it took weeks and even you know my computer wasn't strong enough to run the figures overnight from the EEG caps and it would take 24 hours and then I'm listening to you going as we roll forward to like 2014 you can actually see results online I mean even for that in your book to see the advances in neuroscience that have taken place since you started working is incredible. That's true. I mean, at the beginning of the book, functional brain imaging doesn't exist. It sort of gets invented around about chapter two or three, I suppose. And then, as you say, you know, those early studies with patients like Kate, I, I think I mentioned this in the book, I mean, it, it took almost two weeks to analyze Kate's data. So in fact, it was two weeks after we scanned her that we knew that her brain was responding to faces. Tomorrow, if I put a patient into the scanner here in, in Canada, you know, using the same sort of technology that's you know available in, in any sort of high-end you know, research situation, I can see those responses while they are happening, even with yeah. fMRI. And of course, this is absolutely crucial. Uh, and this is, you know, comes out later in the book for things like communication. Once we'd worked out that some of these patients were in there and we wanted to communicate with them, imagine trying to communicate with a patient if you asked the question and then you got the answer two weeks later. <laughs> You know, I mean, it just wouldn't work. Right? Yeah, you, yeah. Could, you could do something with that, but it wouldn't work. What we do now is we ask questions and the answer now, it doesn't come back a split second later. It maybe takes a couple of minutes, but it is fast enough that you can have a question and answer session with a patient who has no other way of communicating with the outside world. I mean, that's something that just jumped out at me throughout your book. And we are not doing this chronologically. We're kind of jumping around, but that might just, you know, get people, oh, I have to read this book anyway, which you should do. It's absolutely really interesting. You don't have to be hugely interested in neuroscience to enjoy the book. It really is a journey of discovery about being human, you know, in a certain sense, and the excitement of scientific discovery and, and how it actually works. Because as I'm reading it, Having done research myself and you're working on trying to figure out how will we do that, you know, because that's what a lot of science is. You know, if you're doing cutting edge science, you should be the one doing it for the first time in a sense. You're on the edge trying to figure out how do we do this? And what's amazing is the ingenuity in designing your experiments is pretty incredible. You jump from sort of showing faces. You then, I think, move on to paintings. And that, I think, was that was rather ingenious. You know, you moved from the sense of, yes, if somebody's fusiform gyrus is activated, all that really tells us is that the facial recognition part of their brain is working. It doesn't mean whether they can put a name to that person's face, because that happens in another part of the brain. Yeah, I mean, it's perhaps easiest to explain this by uh, thinking about another series of studies that we did with anesthetics. So, I mean, people often... Uh, you know, find it difficult to understand how you could say the brain recognizes a face, but the person's not conscious. And what I mean by that is the parts of the brain that are responsible for face recognition activate in the normal way. Yes, your brain is recognizing the face, but you have no experience of that. You're not in there on the inside thinking, ah, yeah, that's Adrian's face. You don't have any experience. And that's the sort of difference between something occurring in the brain appropriately a part of the brain working properly but you having no consciousness and we only really started to unravel this by actually taking healthy people and sedating them so we did a series of studies later where we would put people to sleep with an anesthetic agent something like propofol which you'd you know if you had your appendix out you may have propofol to put you asleep and have the appendix removed and of course we all those of us that have had any kind of surgery or any general anesthetic you know what it's like uh, you are truly unconscious you disappear from this conscious world and you wake up sometime later five minutes an hour 10 hours and you have no sense of the passage of time that part of your life is gone completely and that's what general anesthetics do for you and what we found we took healthy participants we didn't we didn't make them completely anesthetized but we heavily sedated them so that they were you know basically uh, in a state of partial anesthesia and we found that many of these brain responses were still there we still saw 
facial recognition responses. We still saw language recognition responses. And this is because all of these processes in the brain are completely automatic. They are outside of your conscious control. And here's another example of how I can explain that. People listening to this podcast cannot choose to not understand this, assuming that you're an, you know, an English speaker and you do understand what I'm saying. You can't decide, yeah, I'm going to stop understanding him now. You can decide to stop listening. You can cover your ears. You can't decide because language comprehension is outside of conscious control. Similarly, what we call speech perception. When you're listening to me now, none of you think you're hearing a lawnmower, I hope, or a truck driving by. I hope you hear speech. It's very obviously speech. And your brain has sort of speech perception modules. It has things in the brain that identify the sound as speech. So you can tune into it and try and understand it. And again, you can't choose to not hear this as speech. You can't think, okay, I'm going to decide to just you know, hear noise instead. This is not something you can control. It's you just brought to mind to me something like, you know, when you're a kid and someone was speaking and saying something and actually you'd put your hand in your ears and you go, la, 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 <laughs> I'm not listening because exactly what you say, you cannot not hear it. So the only way when we were kids that we could do it, you stick your fingers in your ears and you make other noise so that you actually are interfering with the language signal because it is that automatic and that important to us. Exactly. But in everyday life, these sort of conscious and unconscious processes go on at the same time. And this brings me back to the example of the pictures you were asking me about. I mean, if, if I show you a picture, for example, a novel sort of picture, a piece of abstract art that you've never seen before, there are two ways in which your brain can memorize that. One can be sort of relatively automatic. So tomorrow, if I show you two pictures and say, which one of these did you see yesterday? You're likely to be able to say, well, it was, it was that one. And that would happen whether or not I told you to remember the picture. Just having seen it before means you'll recognize it later. But there's another type of memory, which is where you willfully try to remember something. Say if I showed you 100 pictures and for 50 of them, I said, try and remember this one. Try and remember this one. And then on the next day, I asked you which ones you'd remembered. The ones where you tried to remember, you'd be better at remembering than the ones that you saw but weren't trying to remember. You'd have some memory for them because you just recognize some of them, but it wouldn't be as good. So you have both a conscious and an unconscious memory system going on there. And this, uh, you know, as you mentioned in the book, is a sort of the moment where I, uh, I guess it was my sort of eureka moment where I, I suddenly realized this is the, the mechanism, I suppose, that we could use to unlock the brains or the minds of these patients because you know, using brain imaging, we can tell whether somebody is willfully thinking something, you know, whether somebody is actively trying to remember a picture that has a, a particular pattern of brain activity associated with it that is different than the sort of memory when you just see something and you automatically remember it. And I sort of keyed into this idea. These are studies we were doing in healthy participants. I was just interested in the relationship between conscious memories and unconscious memories. But I suddenly realized at that moment, yes, if we could get somebody to willfully do something, right, actively try to remember something or actively try to imagine something, and if we could scan that and see that in the brain, that would tell us that the person was conscious. And that led us to the big study that came out in, in 2006. Yeah, it just incredible. And such simple ideas. I think in the book, as you talk about it, you say you sort of stumbled along across the idea, but I think it's the brilliance of your brain had all the information and you fed your brain that question, how can we do it? And, you know, your brain tied all those amazing pieces together over 15 years do you reckon <laughs> oh, well it's, I, I mean it's, it's very nice of you to put it like that. I, I mean I, I don't know honestly you know I, I just yeah. do what I do and I, I always have done I do think you've touched on something that I feel very passionate about when I'm mentoring students and that is I think a lot of people imagine that if you just read everything read all the literature you're going to be able to say do science and for me, it's sort of completely the opposite. I don't want to tell people to not read any scientific literature, but that's not how I've ever done science. What I do is I sort of look at the world around me and I just think about 
things and how they happen. And as I described in the book, I was sitting on the beach in Sydney, Australia, on yeah. a mini sabbatical when I had this eureka moment. And it wasn't because I was reading some of the best works on conscious and unconscious memory. It was because I was sort of sitting there thinking, how is it that, you know, if I, I saw that person's face over there, how is it that I'm going to remember them tomorrow, even though I, I don't intend to do that? And on the other hand, that person over there who I you know, really want to try and remember because I know I've got to have dinner with them tomorrow night. So I just want to think about yeah. the way things actually happen. And then that's where my sort of experimental ideas come from. They don't really come from an appreciation of the whole scientific literature. In fact, I'm really not very good at doing that stuff at all. But I think that's the whole point. So I call this podcast Super Brain because I believe everybody has a super brain, but they just don't trust their brain enough. They haven't learned how to unleash it. I think what you've just done there is an example of having a super brain. It's not about reading the literature. It's actually about being curious about the world. It's about feeding information into your brain. Yes, that's part of it. But it's about asking questions, setting problems for your brain and trusting that if you've been giving your brain novel and exciting experiences and relevant experiences, say in your case, in this instance, but I think this translates to any other realm of life, really, that if you feed that and you keep questioning, your brain will keep bubbling away with that information and connections. Your brain loves patterns. And so it will constantly look for patterns and find solutions like that. And I think that's one of the most important things about keeping your brain healthy and, and looking after your brain is to stay curious. You've got to keep learning. And one of the best ways to keep learning is to look at the world around you and ask those kind of questions. We can't all make amazing discoveries like you did and life-changing discoveries, but we can add incredible joy and excitement to our lives. And like you have this passion for science and and I guess that's what's kept it alive you're driven by the curiosity rather than the papers if you know what I mean we skipped quite a bit and I do want to come back a little bit to one of the loves of your life Maureen because she plays a very integral part in this story and in this journey and rather you do mention kind of coincidences are it's unfortunate but some unusual events happened in your life that as you said changed our lives which always does and one of those was related to Maureen who by the way if I remember correctly did she introduce you to Christy Moore she did yeah, yeah, so for listeners who aren't from Ireland, if you're from Ireland and you don't know who Christy Moore is, well, shame on you. But if you're not from Ireland, Christy Moore is a great musician and thereby I love Maureen already for doing that. And I think you kind of get a little bit of an honorary Irishman status for, for liking Christy too. Oh, I love Christy Moore. I mean, in fact, I still play Christy Moore. My wife is from Nova Scotia and I've introduced her to Christy Moore. And I have a now almost seven-year-old son who loves singing don't forget your shovel whenever we're on a road trip uh, <laughs> don't forget your shovel on extra again you have to be a Christy Moore fan to get that reference but, yeah. um, Google it Google that's another advance since all these years is the internet we used to have to go to libraries and look things up now you can just Google it and on YouTube you'll you'll hear Christy Moore. He's a force to be reckoned with. And actually he's the survivor. Uh, gosh, it must be when, because I remember being at a Christy Moore concert when I was pregnant with one of my kids. That child I think is about 31 now. But I think even back then was he had serious heart problems. I think everybody had him done for over the next few years, but he's still going strong. I don't know much about Christy Moore's personal life. If he's listening to this, I will tell him that people all over the world are wondering how old he is because here in Canada just last week we were having exactly this conversation I was saying you know when uh, Maureen and I were together and that was around about 1989 1990 that's when my son was born so right. yeah well, seemed really old then yes and he's still <laughs> going strong and we're 30 years later, he's still going strong. He's still but, but I think that probably tells more about you and I than him in that we thought he was old because we would have been early 20s then yeah, or you yeah. might have been yeah. teens. And, and yeah. I suspect he was probably about maybe 38 or 40. <laughs> 
Coro Christian Mark. Well, he's given me 30 years of pure joy, I can tell you that. Yes, um, yes. Uh, much, much and you're such a t- you're you've had a band. Oh, that was something as well. I can't remember the name. You you of course have a, are a musician yourself. Yeah, yeah. It could have been Untidy Naked Dilemma. That was probably yes. the strangest name we yes, had. Yes, that's the one. You have to tell me where that came from. I fear we're straying off the beaten track here, but I can tell you it, where Untidy okay. Naked Dilemma came from. <laughs> yeah, do. This yeah, is all part of it. Well, it's all linked. It's actually is all linked to Maureen because not only did Maureen introduce me to many artists like Christy Moore, but her brother, Phil, remains a brilliant guitarist and a very good friend of mine. And Phil introduced me to the guitar. Uh, I vividly remember he and I going out buying my first Yamaha guitar that I still have now. And that really got me into music and playing music. And actually, since then, I've, you know, I've played in bands ever since then, right up until now, typically bands made up of neuroscientists. Uh, and Untimely Naked Dilemma was one of those bands. Yes, I think the name came from a random band name generator. Anybody who's been in a band will know <laughs> you spend way more time worrying about the band name than you do about the music or any other aspect of the band. It's what are we going to call ourselves? And fortunately, nowadays, you have things called band name generators (laughs) it just spits out all sorts of interesting or uninteresting possible names and untidy naked dilemma was something that came out one day and we thought yeah that sounds good we'll go oh gosh (laughs) so back to maureen so you and maureen both worked together in the early days Yeah, we were both neuropsychologists and we were working down at the Maudsley Hospital, part of King's College in South London. I was doing my PhD and Maureen was in uh, psychiatric nurse training. So she was trained to be a psychiatric nurse. She was in one of the best places in the country to do that. And, you know, we got together, we bought a small flat and we lived in Camberwell in in South London. Uh, Unfortunately, the relationship fell apart after a couple of years and we went our separate ways. And in fact, I then came to Canada for the first time and spent three years at the Montreal Neurological Institute. And Maureen remained in London where she was going to complete her psychiatric nurse training. And very shortly after I returned to the UK, I got a call from uh, a mutual friend who was a doctor at the Institute of Psychiatry. And he just said, I have some very bad news. Uh, Maureen has come off her bike and has a severe head injury. It turned out that she'd come off her bike because she'd had a, a brain aneurysm, you know, a sort of a, an explosion, if you like, in the base of her brain that had caused her to come off her bike and hit a tree. So it was a sort of combined traumatic brain injury of hitting the tree and uh, a brain aneurysm. Uh, and this left Maureen in a vegetative state. And in many ways, Maureen is the arc of the book, really. Um, she's there at the beginning because this is how the book opens. This is the first time I probably ever heard the term vegetative state, the first time I came into any knowledge of what it might be. And this was my, mm. my former girlfriend was in a vegetative state. That occurred just a few months before I met Kate at Edinburgh's Hospital. As I say, I was back in the UK working in Cambridge Edinburgh's Hospital. And a few months after my former girlfriend had been diagnosed as being vegetative, I had the opportunity to put a vegetative state patient into a scanner in Cambridge. And, you know, that's part of the the glue of the book, I think, that this was a thing in my personal life that was going on that crossed over with science. Yeah, and I think it's an incredibly important part. And I think it's what makes your book human. When you talked at the start of this, you know, chapter two, you were describing the nucleus accumbens or whatever. And that is a thing. I know I struggled with that in my own first book. You know, you feel you need to explain all these bits of the brain. And actually, you really don't. 
I think it's really, really important. And you do sort of say it in the book, because for you, your journey and the amazing discoveries that you have made have not just come from a place of what we call basic science. It is really basic science in a way what you're looking at, although you do look at some clinical implications of these things. But you are trying to understand how the brain works and what is consciousness and are these people conscious. But what comes through the whole way, and you do reference it back to it, is that Maureen was saying it's about caring and it's about the patients. And that seems to stay with you the whole way, because when you are looking for these ingenious solutions and deciding what to do and how to research. Even though you're trying to establish consciousness, there is always a person there. And you're always thinking about the impact, not just on that person, but these other individuals like Paul, who took his son to the cinema yep. every week for how many years? 10, 12 years, his son was in a vegetative state. And you never lose sight of that. And I think that's why your book is amazing, but also your work. It has been driven by your curiosity, but the human beings and also a need to understand the human condition. Yeah, I, well, I, say, I think I've been very lucky that I have managed to find a way of doing science that sort of combines these two things. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. And this is something that I learned from Maureen. I mean, some of the juicier bits of the book, I go into some details about this that she and I used to argue. And often our arguments were about the value of science in society. And, you know, Maureen was a psychiatric nurse. So she was sort of down there getting her hands dirty, really caring for people who were in exceedingly challenging situations. I was back then treating everything sort of very clinically and scientifically and saying, okay, we're going to take a group of 20 patients with Alzheimer's disease and we're going to test their memory. And back then I was very sort of detached from their lives and the challenges that they face. And the arguments that Maureen and I would have would often revolve around this sort of tension where she would say, well, what's the point? What's it going to do for this person? This is a person who is challenge with these difficulties what's the point in you showing that they have a two percent impairment in their so-and-so kind of memory it was a tension in fact uh, i think part of the reason that we split up is that we couldn't reconcile these sort of two positions because i was very passionate about the science and finding out stuff about the brain and she was passionate about humans who were to some extent suffering and um i've been very lucky i think in that because the way my interest developed in consciousness and patients in the so-called vegetative state have what we call a disorder of consciousness, yeah, I guess I gradually learned to reconcile these two views. And, and it's true, I do spend a lot of my time designing weird experiments in abstract sort of people, but I spend the, a lot of time also sitting down with families who maybe have a, a, you know, a child or a, a husband or a wife or brother or sister in a vegetative state trying to explain to them what we know about the situation that they're in, the conditions, what they may or may not be aware of, and these sorts of things. And of course, that brings me very close to these people's lives. Yeah, there aren't many areas of science that have both of these components, yeah. I think you know, where you can really get involved in somebody's life and think about the whole, think about them as a person. And, but at the same time, answering basic scientific questions like, you know, what is consciousness and how does the brain yeah. generate our sense of consciousness? And I mean, I think in part, you know, when you talk in those early stages of the book and you're doing your PhD and you're all about that, you know, some of that is down to maturity. You know, as you get older and you start to see your parents then, oh gosh, they went through this as people, whereas they were your parents before, almost just an, an, an entity. So I think part of that is some of that change, I would imagine. But I also think, so you and I are both passionate about the fact that we are our brains. And uh, yeah. so you can't not be passionate about neuroscience and studying the brain without being passionate about people, I guess, because that's why I'm passionate about what I do. But I'm like, you are your brain. And that's just such an empowering idea that I just want to kind of scream it from the rooftops because if you are in your brain, no, but you know what I mean? So many people feel that things happen to them and they're powerless and they can't do things. And you want to say to them, look, you have got this amazing organ inside your head with 86 billion neurons and it has incredible capacity for change and progress and adaptation because I think that's what comes through in this book. I mentioned Kate earlier saying, you know, 
she seems to have had an, a particularly unpleasant vegetative state. She ultimately, uh, and, and this happens relatively early, you know, I mean, she ultimately came back, as she said herself, using her words, I was dead and now I'm alive again. And she does have, which is rather interesting, because I do want to talk to you about the sense of self and who we are and that the brain constructs it. And hers is rather interesting because for you and I and for all of us, we have a sense of self. And a lot of people don't give a lot of thought to that. But that sense of self is constructed by your brain. It takes a lot of information in together to come up with that sense of self. So it's not an island idea. It also takes information from what you perceive other people perceive you as and past experiences and things that people have said to you. But it is a construction of your brain. Now, she has a sense, so this kind of interests me because I do have, I'm, I'm really fascinated at the moment around this idea of self and how we can perhaps change ourselves. And um, one of, I would say, almost the side effects of her, she was in a vegetative state. She eventually came out of that vegetative state, but she still seems to be fractured. She refers to herself before the accident and I don't know, does she say self? Certainly in the book, it sounds more like my brain doesn't like me very much. It's as if... She does say that, yeah. 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 She has this sort of odd sort of dissociation between her and her brain, I suppose. Yeah. But it's completely understandable. If you think what she's been through, the other way she describes her sense of self is she says um, there was a point, and this was the point after we scanned her, that she said, I started to be treated as a person again. And her sense before that period was that people treated her as an object. So because they thought she was unconscious, because she thought there was nothing there, they treated her like an object rather That's than... That's one of the really sad things to read in the book. And I think it's a hugely important lesson. And I don't think it's something that just happens to people in vegetative states. My area of research is brain health and it's about dementia risk reduction. And my own mother had dementia. And I think with dementia, there are a lot of people who do not treat the people as still being human beings in there. So it doesn't just happen in vegetative states. It does happen with diseases where people make assumptions that the individual in the, is gone. And I've heard people describe husbands that have dementia by saying, oh, my Jimmy's not there anymore. He's gone. And I want to scream at them. I do a lot of screaming, but, but I feel strongly about these things. No, he is there. He is there. He just can't communicate with you in the way he did before, but he still has desires, wants, needs, fears, etc. It's up to us to find a way to connect and communicate. We have to understand what their new language is now. And it may not be words. It may be other ways. And some of those people call those other ways challenging behaviors, but there's also pleasant behaviors. And you need to figure out how to communicate that way, which is sort of in an essence with what you did with those in that sense, you found a way that you could communicate with them because they were deprived of everything. Yeah, I think it's very interesting how, uh, and I make this analogy in the book, how you know you can swap out most body parts without affecting anybody's sort of sense of personhood or self. It doesn't matter what you want to call it. And I'll just use examples to illustrate what I mean by that. You know, if, if somebody loses a leg in an accident, you don't sort of see them as being any less conscious you know they're just exactly the same but they just have one less leg we do a lot of swapping of organs these days you know if you swap a kidney out somebody has somebody else's kidney or somebody else's heart and lungs you know that person's obviously been through a huge medical trauma but they don't seem different to you in a consciousness sense they're still exactly the same person but a part of them is from somebody else's well think about what would happen if you swapped out somebody's brain i mean it's you know it's not possible but if you and i were to swap brains which one of us would be which one of us? Would you be me with your brain or would you no. be? Yeah, I'd be you with my body because yes. you are your brain. That's, that's it. Would. I would it have would all be. your memories. I'd know who Maureen was. Yeah. I'd know what she looked like. You'd know all sorts and about me. Yeah. Like you. Yes, you would be your body, but my brain. Yes. And I, as a person, would feel no differently. When I looked down, obviously, I would see a different body. Yeah. But I would feel the same way. And that's because, as we've said uh, several times now, you know, we are our brains. Now, brains are in total our sort of sense of 
self. And it's interesting that whenever you mess with somebody's brain or whenever the world messes with or some... something, an illness, an infection, yeah. as we've previously discussed, COVID-19. When you do that in any way, then people start to have doubts or they change their opinion about somebody's level of consciousness. I mean, Alzheimer's disease is an excellent example of that, where you have a patient who's late in the stage of Alzheimer's disease, the relatives will say, I, I don't really know whether she's still there. And, you know, that's a sort of a lay way of saying that you know they have a disorder of consciousness is that person still there is that person that once was now of course the person is still there the physical person but the essence of the person feels like it's gone and you know it happens in psychiatric conditions you know we wonder whether the is this the same person in neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's disease where, you know, the brain is changing? And ultimately, or the ultimate case is in these so-called disorders of consciousness, like the vegetative state and the coma and the minimally conscious state. What of the person I once knew and loved is still in there? And that's the sort of question that has really driven me for the last 30 years. Yeah, and it is really exciting. And I'm always interested in, you know, how we take the kind of science that you do and other people's like you do to actually translate that and say, well, look, this tells us this, and that could be empowering for you. Because if you have certain issues that are related to your sense of self that have been holding you back, or you think your life would be different if that wasn't there, you can empower people and, and show, well, look, this is how your brain works. You can start to make changes. You're not stuck with this self either. You know, it evolved over your lifetime and is shaped by your experiences, which means if you give it future experiences, it will change. I mean, you're, you're not the same person you were when you first met Maureen. Yourself has changed. But something interesting as well, I think, is people become very attached to this concept of personality. And it is just a concept. And sometimes what I find one of the barriers when you say things like we do, you know, you are your brain, is that people somehow think that makes them less. And I just think it just makes us more. I mean, this is kind of incredible. It just is. This is what we are. But I think one prime example of that is when somebody sustains a frontal lobe brain injury and your frontal lobes really are, you know, we'll often call it in psychology, your executive controller almost. It is really involved in those higher order functions that, you know, are involved in making decisions and planning, organizing a lot of the things that sort of shape who we are. And it's that part of the brain that can help you decide that if you're visiting your mom, you don't use curse words, but if you're going out with the guys for a drink, you know, you can populate your entire conversation with whatever the latest swear word is. And the reason it can do that is it is an extremely well-connected part of your brain and it's got bi-directional connections and it has access to your previous experiences and lots of learned experiences. So then if you have an injury to that frontal part of the brain, you will come across, I know my, my undergrad research was actually for people who were caring for people with an acquired brain injury. And so many of those carers frequently sent home to look after this individual with nobody telling them how the brain works, will say, but his personality has changed completely. It's not the man I married. And you kind of go, well, that's just because he has no access to his previous experiences. And in fact, frequently, people who have sustained that type of injury will return to a state similar to maybe a toddler who hasn't yet learned appropriate behaviors, what you're allowed to do or not allowed to do. And in fact, I remember speaking to somebody who had to carry a sign around and say, my husband's not a pervert. He's had a brain injury because he would have an instinctive desire to just reach out and touch things. And that could include women's breasts. But that's no different than a two-year-old will do. But the two-year-old then is told, oh, ah, uh ah, -uh, don't do that. You can't touch that. And you learn. And that's not our personality. That's our brain. And when it can't access. Of course. And, and it, information. Yeah, it's, it's not a coincidence that the frontal lobes are the last part of the brain to fully develop. Yeah. Right. You know, the reason that toddlers are disinhibited, that's what you've just described, yeah. is not because they haven't learned to inhibit. It's that the parts of their brain or the parts of our brains that we use to inhibit using curse words around our mothers, say, uh, or reach out and touch something inappropriately, 
uh, those parts of the brain are not fully developed yet. And as you say, damage to those parts of the brain can put you back to something like a state of being a very young child. Similarly, you know, in some cases, those areas of the brain don't develop normally and those people never move out of that state. I did super brain booster shot on the teenage brain to explain why teenagers are impulsive and reckless and risk takers. And it rewires. It's an incredible period of time, actually, teenagers, because the brain rewires, but it does so from the back of the brain to the front. <laughs> so well, the I, frontal I, lobe... I, I, Surprising that anybody survives being a teenager. <laughs> it is really cool, and particularly boys. But and, and it's also not just a teenager, you know. I mean, it really doesn't get fully developed until about sort of 24, 25. Like it, it is pretty incredible that we do survive it. And I suppose some don't really. Um, there's been so much to talk to you about. I'll, Oh, yes, yes. In terms of consciousness as well, just something interesting that you, some colleagues that you ended up working with and actually discovering, and I'll leave people to discover this themselves in the book. It was something to do with uh, a colleague of yours was doing some research into consciousness in infants that kind of led you to another one of your eureka moments as how you could measure consciousness. And I'll just say you moved from tennis games to Alfred Hitchcock. (laughs) That's a a real teaser there. Yes, but it is really exciting. It's really nice. But something that's very interesting that I hadn't given a lot of thought to is when, and you raise it in your book, is when do babies become conscious? Now, we're not getting into that other debate of, you know, when do they become human? And, you know, that's different. It's when do they become conscious? And that's tied into also a sense of self and awareness of self as distinct from the world around you and distinct from mother and yeah yeah well i use this example in the book and and there's an interesting sort of circularity here that in writing various parts of the book i use this sort of method that i use in my science of just thinking about the world around me to try and address and describe some of these sort of scientific ideas to the sort of general readers that might be reading it and you know when i was saying well how can i sort of describe this problem of you know when does consciousness emerge? And so I just sort of started to ask my friends, you know, do you think teenagers are conscious? And of course, everybody says yes. It's okay. So do you think a single cell, the first thing that happens at conception, do you think that is conscious? And, you know, more or less everybody says no. And then you go to all the places in between, it all gets a bit muddy. You know, if you say, well, do you think a toddler is conscious? You know, most people will say, well, yeah, of course, a toddler is conscious, but not the same way that I am. They're sort of not aware of everything going on around. You know, there's some sort of aspects of consciousness. The building blocks are there, but it's not fully developed. And well, what about one second before birth? Is that fetus conscious? Well, clearly it becomes obvious, hopefully to anybody listening to this, that birth is not a point at which consciousness changes. Clearly consciousness arrives or it manifests, it appears somewhere between you being a single cell and you being a teenager, but it isn't at birth. It's not that we were entirely unconscious and then suddenly we're fully conscious. So when does it arise? Uh, it's a very difficult question to answer. Mm. It's different for different people. We all have very, as you implied, this does tend to polarize people, but actually if you take these extremes, it becomes clear that why it polarizes people, because there's no there's no black and white answer. It is truly a gray zone. Yeah, but the thing is as well, you see, I think that's part of the point is, you know, we used to think, and it's not that long ago, so I, and I say we, I'm using the royal we of neuroscientists, of which I'm kind of relatively new to given my age, but that the brain was fixed and set and you're kind of born with what you have. And we now know that it's an ongoing, developing, dynamic organ and you shape it and it shapes your behaviors and and I think that's actually will tie me very nicely because we're, we are kind of coming towards the end of it. And thank you so much for your time. But that your brain is an ongoing work in progress. And, you know, it's your behaviors, your experiences and your life choices that sculpt it and shape it. And rather interestingly, which I think comes very nicely with the when does the baby become conscious and a self and a person is that one of the individuals, another lovely story in your book was Juan. And he had been in a vegetative state and he actually came back to life for want of a word. He's not dead, but, you know, became I don't want to say became conscious because, you know, we would argue that actually he may have been conscious while he was in a vegetative. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, he's awake and he's functioning. 
But what's really interesting is you meet him over a period of time. And when you first meet him, you feel that there's something a little bit missing, that he's not a full rounded individual. You feel that kind of emotions maybe are a little bit missing. Now, you and I know that the emotional centers in the brain are around the amygdala and in the limbic brain, and they connect with the different parts of our brain. But then you meet him, I think, another year later, and he's talking about feelings and emotions. And I found that really, really interesting is that, yes, he came back to being upright, eyes open and interacting with the world, but it was a work in progress. And gradually, almost like the teenage brain, certain aspects of his brain were gradually coming back over time. And that makes sense if you think about it, that his brain had undergone this incredible trauma to the extent that I think he was a number three on the Glasgow coma scale. So for folks not aware, that's the lowest you can get any lower than that. And you are dead. And this is now a fully functioning individual who's going to school on on his own. But it's like he's going through developmental stages again, but as an adult. And that's the brain being plastic. You know, the brain is plastic. And that's something that we can harness almost in everyday life. We just don't. You know, if someone like that can restore all that functioning and achieve, imagine what we can do as people who haven't had that trauma. Right. Yeah. I mean, Juan is an amazing example of plasticity, I think what we call mm. brain plasticity. And just to put a bit of context into what happened to him. So he he had an anoxic brain injury. He had ingested some kind of substance that had caused him to vomit in his sleep, that had caused him to lose oxygen to his brain. Uh, and he had an, a, what's called an anoxic brain injury, loss just, of oxygen to the yeah, brain. And your brain cannot survive without oxygen. Right. And, um, you know, in his case, he was declared vegetative. He came to see us and he appeared to be, you know, utterly and completely vegetative at the time that we ran him through all the usual tests that, that we do. And uh, seven or eight months later, we got in contact with his mother and, uh, you know, said, well, how's Juan getting on? And what I typically mean by that when I ask a patient's family is, is he still he not healthy, that's alive. Not alive. <laughs> alive, yes. And she said, well, uh, yeah, he's doing fine. Why don't you ask him? And, you know, and this is, it's amazing that, uh, you know, Juan, was learning to talk again, to walk again, to at this point, at this point, to sort of brush his teeth. And, and yeah, it's interesting parallels with the sort of the, the baby toddler idea here too, because as you said, one of the interesting things about Juan was he's, he was annoyed with his legs. He said, my legs still seem to have a life of their own. And, you know, people often think about, you know, things like you're learning to walk again as being a, a physical leg thing. Well, you know, it can be in some instances, but in the case of brain injury, patients who have a stroke and they have to learn to move their arms or learn to lose their legs again, that's a brain thing. It's not a leg thing. You're not getting your legs back. You're getting the parts of your brain that control your legs back. And this is what Juan was really struggling with. He was really trying to get control of his legs because his legs were there his legs worked but his brain couldn't control them anymore and he gradually as i detailed in the book he gradually learns to do that but it's an interesting comparison with the sort of baby idea because of course this is the problem that toddlers and babies have too is they can't control their limbs right yeah but they don't have the same level of consciousness so you don't spend most of your you know early years thinking why can't i control my legs right. uh, only i can control my arms you know because you don't have awareness and consciousness of your sense of self your sense of your body being yours and being under your control um so it's just an experience that most of us don't even remember yes. having. whereas one of course, it was at the point of his accident. He was a, a mature teenager and had full consciousness. And he was fully aware of not being able to control his arms and his legs and his body or his speech. And yes, and it's sort of an interesting dissociation, as you say, yeah. as you previously, putting back into this formative state, except his consciousness was completely different, which gave him a completely different outlook on his life, which is that you know, he had no control. And I'm just thinking, just as we're talking, this capacity of the brain, neuroplasticity, it really just means that the brain has the capacity to adapt in response to learning and grow new connections within the brain. But the teenage years are actually an incredible period of time where neuroplasticity uh, flourishes, for want of a better word. And I wonder, actually, is that something to do with Juan's story his age at the time now I mean I know you spoke to a lot of people 
are you researched a lot of people who were relatively young and, you know, and 15, 20 years have passed, etc. And they never had the outcome that Juan has. But I do wonder whether his age and the plasticity of his brain, whether that was particularly relevant. And also what has come across a lot is his mother was incredible. These are the love stories I'm talking about is people who never, never stopped speaking to, engaging with. They never didn't treat that person lying in the bed as anything other than their brother, their son, their daughter, their husband, you know. And I mean, that has to mean a lot because as you said, and I think you say it in the book, and it's an area that I'm passionate about, is that social isolation is one of the worst things that you can do to your brain. Yeah, I mean, this is one of these things that... um you know, it's hard to sort of pin it down scientifically. But, you know, it's clear from all the patients that I've seen over the years that those who are youngest have a better chance of some some recovery. Uh, But also those who, you know, this is obviously not a black and white thing. It's not a recipe for recovery. But those patients who receive the most attention, the most input from you know family members and people around them that's also something that seems again it's it's just an anecdotal observation really but it does seem to be a factor in in people's recovery and and one can easily understand why that would be the case yeah i mean from so yes it's anecdotal and you know but given the scientific evidence and given how we understand how the brain works how for example if as you mentioned a stroke patient how an occupational therapist and a physiotherapist will be actually trying to encourage neuroplasticity it will be trying to get a part of your brain to take over the functioning of a damaged part of your brain through repetition and getting you to engage in certain activities. We also know that actually social engagement is one of the most, you know, it's an extremely complex cognitive activity. And use it or lose it applies critically with the brain. And I mean, we even see it that hearing loss with age increases your risk of developing dementia. Now, again, that's a bit of a chicken and egg thing as well. Is it because the signal coming into your brain (laughs) is less than it used to be, that your brain's being less stimulated? Or is it because you can't hear, you're not engaging in stimulating activities as before? But either way, your brain is being less stimulated and therefore it's going to be more likely to atrophy and you may be more likely to experience cognitive decline or increase your risk. So if somebody is just left lying and nobody is engaging with that individual to stimulate them, and whether that stimulation is a physical stimulation of massaging and rubbing someone's hands or whether it's reading too, or whether actually I think you brought up that thing. Was it, am I imagining this? Was there some patient who when they came around, around, you know, and we've seen this in movies, you know, what's their favorite song? Play it for them, you know? this 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 woman had one Celine Dion album, which their mother, I think, kept playing to them. And then when they, they came to it, it says, if you fucking play that Celine Dion to me one more time. I mean, that's actually torture. I think you've almost quoted exactly from the book. Although I, I think you inserted the curse word there. I oh, I did. I did. I'm Irish. We like to use good curse words. And it's a podcast, so so I'm allowed to. I, I, I suspect maybe she might have used a curse word, but you did. She may, she may well have done. Maybe, I, maybe it was edited out of the book. I can't remember. But she certainly said, if I ever hear that Celine Dion, I'm going to one of, my, it, uh, one of my colleagues. Yeah, it just shows you, though, about that, you know, oh, let's do, she she loves that, but it's actually that almost that failure of empathy. You go so far in the thing without actually going and sitting, okay, what would it be like if I had to listen to that all the time? On that note, what I do want to do is at the end of each episode, these are, chats are about learning around surviving and thriving in life. And the whole episode really is about that. But I always like to ask my guests if they have one tip that they would like to share from their own experiences around surviving and thriving, if you have anything. And I've just put you on the spot, I know, by looking at you. (laughs) Come on, your your brain won't let you down on this one. I think you've touched on it already. I mean, you've given this to me, which is that you can always change. Don't ever stop trying to challenge your brain. You know, the way to do that is not just through the accumulation of information. You're not going to change and improve and have a better life, I would say, by just 
learning everything you can possibly learn. You've got to look around you and try and answer questions about you know life, the universe, and everything based on your own observations. Look at things and think about them. Think, why is it that the world works like this? Why is it that my brain thinks the things that it does? And you don't need to be a neuroscientist to answer those sorts of questions, or at least to begin to answer them. And I, you know, I, I think you can get a long way in expanding your mind, for want of a, a better expression, by just stopping and thinking about life sometimes. Mm, that's super. And I think actually you do say something in the book. It's not about the gathering of facts. It's how you use them. Yeah, Do you say that? And that is true. You know, that's one part of it. You gather the information and what you do with it is the exciting bit in a way. Something that I often talk to my students about is this. I think they often approach science completely the wrong way up. What they hope is that if they read everything, they'll get there and they'll understand how to design a great experiment or study and, you know, what to do. And actually, I do it completely the opposite way. And I shouldn't be confessing this uh, in public, but I often don't read anything about the yeah. subject I'm about to do research in or it, something will just catch my eye yeah. and I'll think, wow, how does that work? Well, if it works like this, how could you go about testing that? And if we found this, that would really change everything, wouldn't it? Then I do the study. Then I read all the other stuff that's been yeah. written about it and I fit my results, which are the real world, into what is known about this. I don't try and create my world out of everything everybody else has already written. I try and start with a blank slate and work out. I think it's not necessarily the only way to go, but it makes for a really interesting journey. I totally agree with Adrian. Research aside, being curious is fun and it's brilliant for brain health. Don't limit your world to the familiar. Afford yourself the opportunity to encounter the unfamiliar. Your curiosity may actually help you to discover your passion. Dr. Adrian Owen is currently conducting research into the impact of COVID-19 on the human brain. You'll find a link to take part in his study in the show notes for this episode. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. If you have any questions about today's episode or suggestions for future guests or boosters, please email me at info at superbrain.ie. Christy Moore is 75, by the way. Don't forget your shovel if you want to go to work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.